Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Hello, my fellow Believers, and welcome back to the Combat Bets podcast on the Believe Network. I'm your host, Jason Barron. Of course, I'd like to start out this week's episode by recapping Wilder vs. Fury 2. Now, going into the fight, a lot of people were actually picking Wilder to win and Wilder by knockout. Personally, I thought Fury would win a decision. I did not expect the fight to be so one-sided. I really expected a competitive matchup, especially looking at their first fight. But if you listen to Fury, he said, If Wilder couldn't beat me when I was 50% of the man that I was in 2018, then he had no chance to beat me when I'm 100% the man I was in the ring on February 22nd. And that's exactly what happened. He took it to him. He bullied the bully. And Wilder really got exposed. We had never really before seen Wilder pushed like this and embarrassed like this. And for me, there really doesn't need to be a rematch, a third fight. Of course, I would like to see Tyson Fury take on Anthony Joshua. But getting back to the fight at hand between Wilder and Fury, and from the opening bell, you could just tell that this was going to be Fury's night. And you have to give a lot of credit to his trainer, Sugar Hill Stewart, because he really might have unlocked something in Fury that we didn't really get to see before. Because in past fights, while, while Fury does have some significant knockout power, he would often use his boxing skill and his defensive acumen to beautifully bob and weave out of punches, often with his hands down just to show how agile he is at 6'9". And he outweighed Wilder by more than 40 pounds, coming at 273. I believe Wilder came in at 231. And on top of that, as I'm sure you've heard after the fight, Wilder made the excuse, let's call it, that the heavy armor he was wearing going into the ring, about 45 pounds of it, really affected his legs. Well, my thing is, if this is the biggest fight of your career, you need to do everything possible to increase your chances of winning and being active in the dressing room before coming out to the fight, putting on that big suit of armor that Deontay Wilder came into the ring with, really is not setting yourself up for success. So every detail needs to be planned. So hopefully Wilder learned from this mishap and can be better for it in future fights. But if you're Wilder, can you really blame him for maybe not taking Fury as seriously as he needed to because if I had Deontay Wilder's power and I watched the tape of myself I'd be very confident I would think I can end the fight with just one punch so you know I don't really need to train the fundamentals of boxing because most likely I'm not going to need them because all I need is that one punch and Wilder really got exposed it really showed that he really needs to work on his fundamentals on his defensive defensive instincts, 
on being able to get off combination punches and not just look for that one punch knockout because it's going to make Wilder that much more of a dangerous fighter. And maybe a terrible like loss like this will really push Wilder and make him want to be better. Because one of two things can happen after a fight like this. One thing that could happen is that Wilder comes back much better, much stronger, much more fundamentally sound. And the other thing that could happen is that he could backtrack and not be as good as he once was. Think of examples like Jose Aldo after he got knocked out by Conor McGregor. He really was never the same after that fight. And then you look at even in boxing, perhaps Gennady Glovkin after he lost to Canelo Alvarez in their second fight. I don't know if he's been the same knockout destroyer guy that he was before he fought Canelo. So, you know, these fights can really take a lot out of the fighters. And now look at Sergei Kovalev after he just got knocked out by Canelo Alvarez. I doubt he'll ever be the same fighter again. And as you may very well know, it is in the contract that the loser of the fight has the ability to enact a rematch within, I believe, 25 days after their fight. So it's on Wilder to say that he wants the rematch. And all signs point to Fury versus Wilder having a trilogy fight in the summertime. Wilder has said that he wants the rematch along with making some excuses for why he lost the fight, saying that his legs weren't there because of his ill-conceived ring walk. But to me, Fury was just the better man in there. And Fury right now is the best heavyweight in the world. And the second best heavyweight in the world? Well, that remains to be seen. Right now, it could be Deontay Wilder. It could be Anthony Joshua. But right now, Fury reigns supreme. And of course, all boxing fans want to see Tyson Fury take on Anthony Joshua in what would most likely be the biggest British boxing fight in history. Two British heavyweights battling it out to determine who will be the undisputed champion, the baddest man in the world. Right now that's Fury and looking at his fight against Wilder, he was really able to be much more offensive and didn't really need to use much defense. He was able to use his long reach against Wilder to keep him at bay and then land that beautiful power right that really made Wilder look like an amateur in there, like he didn't even deserve to share the ring with Tyson Fury. And some people are going to make the excuse that, oh, Wilder got hit behind the ear in the third round, and after that his equilibrium was off. And that's why he lost the fight. But even before that punch landed behind the ear, Wilder was definitely confused and not looking right. And the reason that that punch did land behind the ear is because Wilder was moving around all crazy and the punch just happened to land there. It's not like Tyson Fury did it intentionally. It's because Wilder was moving around very undisciplined and got caught. And like I said, I don't think it was intentional. So there should be no controversy. Tyson Fury was no doubt the better man on that night. 
And then in the second, the second knockdown came in the fifth round after an accumulation of punches and a body shot put Wilder down. And then we saw Wilder bleeding from the ear and it looked like his jaw might have also been broken. But we learned after the fight that it was just a cut in the ear and his eardrum was not ruptured. And also it appears that his jaw did not get broken. So that's good that Wilder did not suffer any major injuries other than utter embarrassment and utter domination by Tyson Fury. And then, of course, in the seventh round, it marked the end of the fight. Tyson Fury had Wilder backed up in a corner and he was landing beautiful one-twos on him, setting it up with a jab and then coming back over with that beautiful power right. And a few of those landed along with the accumulation of punches that Wilder was taking all fight. And watching the fight, I didn't realize this. I thought Kenny Bayless had stopped the fight. But as we know, the corner did throw the towel in. And I thought Kenny Bayless had actually stopped it simultaneous to the towel throwing in because watching the fight, I didn't actually see the towel being thrown in. But regardless... It was a good stoppage, and really Wilder didn't need to take any more of a beating from Tyson Fury beyond that seventh round. And in between rounds, Kenny Bayless actually spoke to to Deontay Wilder and told him, you need to show me something or I'm about to stop this fight. So either way, it was going to most likely be a stoppage win for Tyson Fury, even if they didn't throw the towel in. So I don't want to hear any excuses that, oh, Wilder might have had a chance, you know, because he has that great power. No, Fury is the best heavyweight in the world. And until he fights Anthony Joshua, there's still maybe a little doubt that he is. But I think he would beat Anthony Joshua. I mean, he's 6'9", 273 pounds with an 85-inch reach. I mean, that's like the perfect heavyweight if you're building one in a lab. And oh, you tell me he has great defensive instincts and he can box like a middleweight and move around the ring like a much smaller man and be very agile. I mean, I think he would beat Deontay Wilder in their third fight. And then I also think he would beat Anthony Joshua. And comparing the rematch between Andy Ruiz Jr. and Anthony Joshua to the rematch of Tyson Fury and Deontay Wilder. Well, Anthony Joshua really boxed not to lose and not to get knocked out. He boxed very conservatively, used his length and his height advantage to keep Andrews Jr. at bay. And then in the post-fight interview, Andy Ruiz Jr. actually said he felt he was little out of shape and did not perhaps train like he should have for their rematch. Well... If you're fighting Anthony Joshua and you have a chance to retain the belts that you won from him in their first fight, you better train twice as hard as you did for their first fight because you know it's unlikely that you'll beat him twice. And Andy Ruiz Jr. simply did not do that. And I find some similarities in the way that Andy Ruiz Jr. was talking after the fight, making excuses saying he was out of shape, maybe he didn't train like he should have, 
to the excuses that Deontay Wilder was making after the fight, saying that his legs weren't there, blaming it on the ring costume that he wore coming into the ring. And these fighters didn't really give credit to the better man in the ring, which was Tyson Fury against Wilder and, of course, Anthony Joshua against Andy Ruiz Jr. So I think it's kind of interesting to look at the parallels of these two huge heavyweight fights and look at some of the similarities that we see between them. But the main difference between these two fights is the way that Tyson Fury approached the rematch. He didn't fight not to lose. He fought looking for the knockout and not wanting to leave it in the hands of the judges. And that's something you can really respect. That warrior mentality, that gypsy king mentality that Tyson Fury has of, I'm going to beat this man and prove I am the best man and not do it relying on the scorecards, but by doing it with his fists and ending the fight with a knockout. So looking forward, it looks like Tyson Fury and Deontay Wilder will have their trilogy in the summertime. And also Anthony Joshua will be fighting Kubrat Pulev. So of course we'd love to see the winner of those two fights fight each other. And most likely that would be Tyson Fury versus Anthony Joshua for a unification bout. But you can never discount Deontay Wilder's power. And if he comes in with a better game plan in their third fight, he could still knock out Tyson Fury. But judging by what we saw in their second fight and how great Tyson Fury looked as a predominantly offensive fighter, it's going to take a great performance to actually beat Tyson Fury in a 12-round fight, especially a motivated Tyson Fury that's in the gym, that's training, that's getting better. Because Tyson Fury got a lot better from Otto Wallin to now fighting against Deontay Wilder in their rematch. I mean, if you told me going into the fight that Otto Wallin would have posed a greater challenge than Deontay Wilder, I would have said, you're crazy. But that's exactly what happened. Otto Wallin proved to be a great challenge for Tyson Fury, and Fury learned from that tough fight and decided he needed to change his preparation for fights, thus getting Sugar Hill Stewart to help him learn this new style of boxing, and I think it's really suiting Tyson Fury well, and it could set him up to be one of the most dominant heavyweights in the history of boxing. He's only 31. We'll see how many more fights Tyson Fury has left in him, but hopefully we do get that unification bout between Anthony Joshua and Tyson Fury, an absolutely super fight for British boxing. Now, moving on from the main event, and to the co-main event on that card between Charles Martin and Gerald Washington. This was a heavyweight co-main event, and there really wasn't that much action during the fight, but in heavyweight boxing, it really only takes one punch, and that's what we saw when Charles Martin landed a beautiful counter overhand left to knock down Washington, and then the referee called a stop to the fight after he saw Washington was not able to continue fighting. Charles Martin did a beautiful job of catching Washington between punches, and he didn't really see the punch coming, which made the force of it all the more brutal. 
And it was really an impressive performance from Charles Martin. And it could set himself up against other top heavyweights. Maybe a Dillian White. Maybe a Daniel Dubois. We'll see what's in store for Charles Martin. But he did well on a huge stage in the co-main event. And in the third fight, we had a fight for the WBO Junior Featherweight title, which was retained by the champion Emmanuel Navarrete as he beat Gio Santissima by TKO in the 11th round. And give a lot of credit to Santissima here. He was able to last until the 11th round. But ultimately, the length and the skill of Navarrete was just too much, and the accumulation of punches really put an end to the fight. And Navarrete said in the post-fight that his thumb was hurt, and he wasn't able to throw all the punches like he wanted to, and despite that, he was still able to stop a tough opponent in Santissima in the 11th round. And Navarrete could soon be moving up in weight, because being at the height that he is, he often has to cut a lot of weight in order to be able to fight. So he could be moving up and fighting bigger fighters in the future. We'll, so we'll see how Navarrete does if he indeed does move up in weight. But he has been absolutely dominant ever since beating Isaac Dogbo and taking Dogbo's title. He's been absolutely dominant in this division. And uh, I wish Navarrete nothing but success if he does indeed move up in weight. He's truly a special fighter, and you usually don't see fighters that are fighting at that low weight with that height and that reach and also the boxing skill and the impressive power to get guys out of there like Navarrete has been doing. I mean, he has 31 wins and 27 by knockout. That's really impressive. Now, moving on from boxing and into the UFC, this past Saturday, we had a lightweight main event from Spark Arena in Auckland, New Zealand, and it was between Paul Felder and Dan Hooker. Dan Hooker won the fight by split decision, 47-48, 47-48, and 48-47, one judge giving the edge to Felder. And then looking at the total strikes... Felder landed 119 out of 243, while Dan Hooker landed 133 out of 234. Significant strikes 110 for Felder and 122 for Hooker. And then you look at control, zero, uh, only one second of control for Felder and 4 minutes and 49 seconds of control for Dan Hooker. I thought it was a very close fight. I thought Dan Hooker got off to a great start. And then as Paul Felder was pushed with some adversity, he really was able to push the pace and was outlanding Dan Hooker. And one of the main differences between boxing and MMA is that in MMA, there's takedowns and wrestling. And in boxing, nothing can save you if you're getting hit. You're just going to keep getting hit with those fists and you can't take your opponent down to stop getting hit but as we saw in this fight Dan Hooker was getting hit a lot by Paul Felder in those later rounds and then in the fifth round because Felder was able to land with such effectiveness and power 
Hooker really went hard for that takedown so he would stop getting hit on the feet. He was able to land that decisive takedown in the fifth round, and that might have been what swung the fight in his favor in the eyes of the judges. It was a very close fight. It was a great fight, a very competitive fight between two very evenly matched opponents, and that's what I expected going into this fight. And Paul Felder had the good fortune of being on the right side of a controversial split decision win over Edson Barbosa in his last fight. So maybe it's a little karma as Dan Hooker got the split decision win this time around. And post-fight, Paul Felder was saying that this could be his last fight and that he might retire. If he does retire, I would like to say that Paul Felder always put on exciting fights whenever I got a chance to watch him. And this fight against Dan Hooker was no different. And if you saw post-fight, they posted a picture of themselves in the hospital side-by-side next to each other, really showing the true warrior mentality of the fighting game. You fight as hard as you can in the octagon, and that outside of the octagon, you guys can go to the hospital together and talk about what a great fight you guys just put on for the fans. So I encourage you to catch that fight if you haven't. So far, it's one of the fights of the year in the UFC for 2020. Moving on from the UFC and back into boxing, from Frisco, Texas, a Dizan card. In the main event, we have Mikey Garcia versus Jesse Vargas. 12 rounds, a welterweight fight. And then in the co-main event, we have Cal Yafi facing Roman Chocolatito Gonzalez. We, of course, know Chocolatito from his days as possibly the best fighter in the world. Once ranked at the top of the pound-for-pound rankings. But after back-to-back losses to Sorekasite Sorungisai, Gonzalez has never really been the same. Both those losses happened back in 2017. And since those losses, Chocolatito has returned to his winning ways by getting a KO victory over Moises Fuentes in his first fight back after suffering a KO loss to Sorung Gavisai. And then after he beat Moises Fuentes, he followed that up with a TKO victory in the second round over Demiel Doikis, and that was his most recent fight, which was back in December of 2019. So he'll be making his return to the ring in a step-up-in competition against the current WBA Super Flyweight title champion Khalid Yafi, a British boxer with great fundamentals and definitely has a chance to beat Gonzalez when they fight and retain his title. And looking at the odds for this fight, Yafi checks in at a slight favorite at minus 145 while Roman Gonzalez checks in at plus 115. So you can see the odds makers are thinking this is going to be a very close fight that could possibly go to a decision. Roman Gonzalez checks in at 5'3 with a 64-inch reach, and he's 32 years old. And his opponent, Kal Yafi, 
is 30 years old. He's 5 foot 4 and with a 64.6 inch reach. But actually looking at them side by side after the weigh-in, it actually appeared that Yaffe might have a 2 or 3 inch height advantage over the smaller Chocolatito Gonzalez. So we'll see how that plays out in the ring. Gonzalez had said himself that he's in great shape for this fight and that you'll see the Chocolatito of old during the fight, so we'll see if that rings true. But Yaffe is no doubt a very talented fighter. He is undefeated with 26 wins, and 15 of those wins have come by knockout, while 11 by decision. So he might not have the highest knockout percentage, but he shows he can get it done with a knockout or by decision. And then moving on to Chocolatito's record, he is now 48 wins with two losses. The only two losses came against the one opponent I mentioned before, Sorung Visai, a fighter from Thailand. And out of those 48 wins, he has 40 by knockout and only eight by decision. So this is really why Chocolatito was thought of so highly prior to his losses. It's because he had unbelievable power, getting 40 wins by knockout, weighing only 112 to 115 pounds, depending on where he was fighting at. His record really is a testament to his power and also his great boxing acumen. And looking at the tape of Yaffe, I'm really impressed by how disciplined of a fighter he is. Even when he's about to perhaps get the knockout, he's still keeping his footwork correct and still looking to land shots from great angles. And then going up against Gonzalez, he's obviously going to have the size advantage. So it'll be important for Chocolatito to really try to put the pressure on Yaffe and make him fight off the back foot. Because if Chocolatito gets pushed back against the ropes, it could spend the end of the line for him. Maybe he'll retire if he loses to Yaffe. We'll see what happens. But this is a very close fight. It should be very competitive. And it's going to be a hard one to pick. Roman Gonzalez is one of the best inside fighters in boxing. He's really able to get in there because of his size and land effective combination punching. And he tends to get better after getting hit a few times. It seems if you hit Gonzalez, he'll come back even stronger at you. So we'll see if that's true in this fight. I'm expecting some great fireworks in this fight. And I actually do like Gonzalez to get the win because I think he's a better offensive fighter than Yaffe. And I'm not sure that Yaffe has the speed to really um, make Roman Gonzalez look bad for 12 rounds. So I'm going to say Gonzalez wins this fight, perhaps by knockout. I'm going to say a 10th or 11th round knockout for Gonzalez, just because he's shown great power in his recent fights, even after his defeats. And I think that Chocolatito could be back and could set himself up for more big fights in the future, maybe against uh, Inouye, maybe a rematch with Sorung Visai if he wants that. But it all starts with getting a big win over Yaffe and getting that title that he wants so bad to win as Yaffe is the current champion. So make sure to tune into that fight because whenever two small fighters get in the ring, there's bound to be fireworks with fists flying at fast rates and a lot of punches thrown and landed. So make sure to check in for that because Gonzalez always puts on exciting fights 
and Yaffe is a decently skilled defensive fighter with maybe not the knockout power that Gonzalez has looking at their knockout percentages in their career. So I'm expecting a very competitive fight and I like Gonzalez to edge it. So tune into that fight. It should be absolutely amazing fireworks. And then in the main event, we have Mikey Garcia taking on Jesse Vargas. Mikey Garcia will be making his return to the ring after not fighting since March of 2019. And that loss, he suffered a unanimous decision lost to Errol Spence Jr. in an ill-conceived notion to move up in weight and fight for the IBF welterweight title. It really showed that he had the size disadvantage in there against Errol Spence Jr. And interestingly enough, this fight against Jesse Vargas is also at welterweight, so we'll see how he does after attempting to move up in weight once again after still losing to Errol Spence Jr. in his last fight. And before that loss, Mikey Garcia was undefeated with 39 wins and 0 losses. So that's a very impressive record. And he's fought some great fighters in the past. He's beat Robert Easter Jr., Sergey Lipinitz, Adrian Broner. He also beat Orlando Salido. So he's fought some decent fighters in the past. And he was the champion at his weight class. In his fight prior to the Errol Spence Jr. lost, he fought Robert Easter Jr. And he retained the WBC lightweight title and also won the IBF lightweight title. And before that, he held the IBF and vacant lineal junior welterweight titles. So you have to give this fighter a lot of credit with an undefeated record and the champion at lightweight, he decided to take on the challenge and move up to welterweight in an attempt to beat the great Errol Spence Jr. But obviously, looking at that fight, there was just too much boxing skill and too much size advantage for Errol Spence Jr. And Mikey Garcia never really had a chance in that fight. But give him a lot of credit for lasting until a decision and not getting stopped by Errol Spence Jr. And then going into this fight against Jesse Vargas... He's definitely not the best fighter that Mikey Garcia has ever faced in his career. And then looking at Jesse Vargas's record, he is coming off a win over Humberto Soto, a TKO in the sixth round. And before that, a split decision draw to Thomas DeLorme. And then a majority decision draw to Adrian Broner. This guy has been in some close fights. And then... Before that, a unanimous decision win over Aaron Herrera. And he also has a TK win over Saddam Ali. A very impressive performance. A ninth round TKO. A brutal knockout, really, if you haven't seen it. And then he also suffered two unanimous decision losses to Manny Pacquiao and Timothy Bradley. But you got to give a lot of credit to Jesse Vargas for lasting 12 rounds against great fighters like Timothy Bradley and Manny Pacquiao. So he's fought some great fighters in the past. Hasn't necessarily won those fights, but the fact that he got those fights and remained competitive during those fights, a draw to Adrian Broner, and then two unanimous decision losses to Bradley and Pacquiao, it really shows that Vargas 
is a pretty good fighter, but maybe not at the elite level that it would take to beat a fighter of Mikey Garcia's boxing skills. Because despite the loss to Errol Spence Jr., Mikey Garcia has been one of the best boxers of the last decade. And looking at these two fighters, it's obvious that Mikey Garcia has the better fundamentals and he's able to pick his punches and really fight from a straight on forward position. Kind of similar to Danny Garcia, actually, when you look at their fighting styles. And then Jesse Vargas is a little more undisciplined in there and he doesn't always have the best fundamentals. So we'll see how that plays out against Mikey Garcia, who is one of the toughest opponents that Jesse Vargas has ever faced. And for Mikey Garcia, it's a chance to see if he can indeed compete at welterweight. And it's a good jumping off point for him against Jesse Vargas, who is not quite elite, but also not a terrible fighter either. So it's a, it'll be a good test for him. Var- Vargas is a really great offensive fighter. He doesn't always have the best defense, but he loves to get in a brawl and make it a dirty fight like he did kind of against Timothy Bradley and then how he dominated against Saddam Ali. Those are examples of Jesse Vargas really putting the pressure on his opponent and really looking for that knockout or at least looking to try to win the fight any way possible because he knows he doesn't have the best fundamentals, but he has great heart and great boxing skills in terms of being able to get his shots off. So we'll see how well that works against Mikey Garcia, a very disciplined fighter that likes to stick to his game plan and not get too wild in there like Jesse Vargas often does. And then looking at the measurables for this fight, Jesse Vargas is 30 and he has a 70 inch reach and he stands at 5'11". And then looking at his opponent, Mikey Garcia, he stands at 5'6". With a 68-inch reach and he's 32 years old. So there is a height advantage for Jesse Vargas of 5 inches. Which could end up being significant depending on how the fight plays out. And then looking at the odds for this fight. Mikey Garcia checks in as the favorite at minus 550. While Jesse Vargas is the underdog at plus 375. So... For my pick, I'm going to have to go with Mikey Garcia here to get the win and most likely a late knockout because I think he has more boxing skills and he's shown he has knockout power in the past and looking at Mikey Garcia's record, he has 39 wins and out of those 39 wins, 30 have come by knockout and 9 by decision and against a fighter like Jesse Vargas that likes to come in front of you and likes to push forward. He doesn't necessarily make himself the hardest target to hit. So I expect Mikey Garcia to be able to land good combination punches against a come forward fighter like Jesse Vargas. And looking at Vargas's record, he has 29 wins with only 11 by knockout and 18 by decision with two losses and two draws. This shows that he doesn't necessarily have great knockout power with only 11 knockouts in his career versus the impressive knockout percentage of Mikey Garcia. So we'll see how that plays out as Mikey Garcia will be the smaller fighter in there and moving up in weight to welterweight to challenge Vargas. 
So it should be an interesting fight, and I like Mikey Garcia to get a a late stoppage, similar to how I expect Roman Gonzalez to also get a late stoppage. So we'll see if that does play out. I'm picking Mikey Garcia here by 11th round TKO victory. So tune into that Dizan card because it is a strong card, even outside of the main event and the co-main event. We also have Joseph Parker fighting, a fighter that formerly fought against Anthony Joshua, a great heavyweight, and he needs another great performance here. I expect he'll get the win over Shondell Winters, an American heavyweight. So tune in to that Dizan card because there's a lot of great fights and it should be a great night of boxing. Moving on from boxing and back into the UFC, on February 29th, from the Chartway Arena in Norfolk, Virginia, we have UFC Fight Night Benavides vs. Figueroa. And looking at the measurables, Jose Benavides is 5'4, 125 pounds, with a 65 inch reach. His opponent, Devison Figueroa, a Brazilian fighter, is 5'5, five five, with 125 pounds and 68 inch reach. And then he has a striking accuracy at 52.71% versus 33.88% for Benavides. And he also has a takedown percentage of 47.37% versus only 31.31% for Benavides. So it looks like Figueroa is the better wrestler and also the better striker going into this fight. And looking at the odds, Benavides checks in at a slight favorite at minus 130, while Figueroa is a slight underdog at plus 100. This should be a great flyweight fight with a lot of action, as these are two great flyweights that should put on a great main event showing. And this would do a lot to determine who really is the best at 125 pounds. After winning the title from Demetrius Johnson, Henry Cejudo has since vacated his flyweight title at 125 pounds, so it really could be up for grabs, that flyweight title. And this would this fight would do a lot for both fighters if they can put on an impressive performance. And looking at the odds for this fight, you can see that people really think this is going to be a very close and competitive fight. And Benavides is one of the more explosive fighters in UFC history. And looking at his record, he has 28 wins. Eight of those wins have come by knockout, nine by submission, and 11 by decision. And then he has five losses, one by knockout and four by decision. So this shows that Benavides can win the fight in any number of ways, either by knockout, submission, or decision. So we'll see how that plays out going up against Figueroa in his next fight. And his losses have come to Sergio Pettis by split decision, a KO punch loss to the great Demetrius Johnson, and then another loss to Demetrius Johnson, a loss to two losses to Dominic Cruz. So really his only losses have come to some legendary fighters in Dominic Cruz and Demetrius Johnson and then a disappointing loss to Sergio Pettis. But since that loss, he has come up with a TKO victory over Alex Perez and then a unanimous decision win over Dustin Ortiz. And then in his most recent fight, which was back 
in June of 2019, he came up with a TKO victory over Jussier Formiga, and that was in the second round. So some impressive performances for Benavides, and he'll need another one going up against Figueroa, who is a very tough Brazilian fighter. And Figueroa really has a lot of size in there, especially for a guy that only weighs in at 125 pounds. He just looks a lot stronger and a lot more fundamentally sound than a lot of his opponents. And looking at Figueroa's record, he has 17 wins and one loss. Eight of those wins have come by knockout, six by submission, and three by decision. And he's coming off a beautiful guillotine choke submission victory over Tim Elliott back in October of 2019. And in this fight, it was clear that Tim Elliott was just outclassed. And when Tim Elliott shot for a takedown, Figueroa beautifully locked up his neck, cranked down on it, and got the great uh, submission victory over him. And then before that, he had a unanimous decision win over Alexander Patoja. And before that, a unanimous decision loss. His first loss of his career to Jussier Formiga the same fighter that Josef Benavides actually beat by knockout in his fight. But I am going to have to pick Figueroa here to get a split decision victory over Benavides. I just think he'll be able to take Benavides down and perhaps control him on the ground with his wrestling. And I also think he'll have a significant strength advantage over Benavides, who will most likely be the smaller fighter in there and Figueroa is as I mentioned before quite big for 125 pounds and I think that'll serve him one well against Benavides who is a great fighter in his own right but I think that the strength advantage and also the wrestling acumen of Figueroa might be too much for Benavides to overcome and Benavides is really going to hope to land some explosive punches to try to stop the forward pushing Brazilian and if he's unable to get off his combination punching and striking then it could be a long night for Benavides, who could end up getting out wrestled on the ground so we'll see if this is more a fight that is fought on the feet or if this is predominantly a fight that is uh, won and lost on the mat so it should be an interesting style matchup and a great flyweight main event so tune into that fight which as I said before, is on February 29th uh, from Norfolk, Virginia. And the main card starts at 5 p.m. on ESPN+. Well, that will conclude this episode of Combat Bets, episode number 7 on the Believe Network. Thank you so much for listening, and apologies for getting this episode out a little later in the week. But I did want to wait until I had some more information after the Wilder Fury fight so I could bring my perspective to that in my recap. So thank you so much for listening. Kobe forever, Mamba forever. Thank you. Check back next week. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.
You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.